Women in Wellbeing is an Evans Center podcast, highlighting emotional well-being and mental health through Jewish sources and interviews with experts and activists. Our host, Karen Muller-Jackson, is a certified Matan Marala Halakha, Jewish educator, writer, founder of Kifun Lashirut Guidance Program for Religious Girls, and creator of Power Parsha. Just as the mikvah waters create the opportunity for renewal, we hope the insights shared here will serve as a springboard for discussion and rejuvenation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Eden Center Women and Wellbeing Podcast. This Tevet podcast is sponsored by Yaffa Zweig and family, in loving memory of her mother, Kay Zweig, Chaya Tova Bat Yisrael Vabatya, to mark her yard site on Zion Tevet. This month, in honor of the upcoming fast day, Asarab Tevet, the 10th of Tevet, also known as Yom HaKadish HaKlali, I will be sharing some Torah thoughts and Talmudic sources on the nature and meaning of Jewish mourning. After that, I'll be talking with Sally Berkovic, who will share her experience of working for the Hevra Kadisha, particularly as a woman, and about ways that women memorialize their loved ones through saying Kaddish and other ways. We'll also be talking about Holocaust remembrance. Sally's recent book, Death Duties, is enlightening and inspiring, and I recommend it. The mitzvah of burial is derived from an interesting source in the Torah. The Book of Dvarim teaches that a criminal who has been hung must not be left on the gallows overnight. He must be buried. The Talmud in Sanhedrin explains that this is to teach that even a criminal was created in the image of God and therefore his body should be buried so as to preserve the dignity of the image of God. Rashi, citing this Gemara, brings a parable. It may be compared to a case of two twin brothers who very closely resembled each other. One became king and the other was arrested for robbery and was hanged. Whoever saw him on the gallows thought that the king was hanged. The mashal of the two brothers, where the image of one brother was a king while the other is a criminal, is hinting that the brother who is a king is a reflection of the king of kings, a reference to God. This theme of respect for the mates, and the imperative of burial is developed further in Masach Brachot. After discussing the centrality of the Shema in Jewish prayer, the Mishnah lists a number of people who are potentially exempt from saying Shema and other mitzvot. The Mishnah reads, One whose deceased relative is laid out before him, Mutal Lefanav, is exempt from the recitation of Shema, from the Amida prayer, and from the mitzvah of tefillin, as well as all positive mitzvot mentioned in the Torah, until the deceased has been buried. At this stage, before the deceased is buried, the person is in a state of what is called in halacha aninut. Without getting into practical halachic details of when and to whom this applies, I'd like to think about the thought behind this. Why is there such a sweeping category of exemption? There are a few reasons which emerge from the sources. One is that this is because of the principle of osek ba mitzvah patur mina mitzvah. One who is busy fulfilling one mitzvah can't fulfill another at the same time, and therefore they're exempt from fulfilling the second mitzvah. Another approach is that it would not be kavod hametz, honor to the, to the deceased, if a person is busy with mitzvot and not fully focused on the preparations for burial. A third idea is suggested by a more modern thinker, Rav Soloveitchik. Rav Soloveitchik suggested that there was perhaps a deep psychological piece to this halacha. 
It is about compassion and understanding that in the face of loss, it would just be hard for a person to go about routine and fulfill mitzvot as usual. The halachic work, known as the kolbo, also writes about the mitzvah of burial. And he adds another dimension. He writes that there is an element of hakarat hatov in burial, an opportunity to treat the physical body, which has been a home to the soul, with, with respect. The physical body is likened to tashmishe kedusha, holy objects, as a person did mitzvot and good deeds with their physicality. All of these sources highlight how Judaism views the body as holy, as the image of God, and therefore deserving of dignity and death. Sally Berkovic is the daughter of Slovakian Holocaust survivors and grew up in Melbourne. After living in New York and Jerusalem, an epistolary romance brought her to London in 1993. Since 2009, she has been the CEO of the Rothschild Foundation Hanadiv Europe, a foundation that supports Jewish heritage and culture across Europe. She also has developed a freelance writing career, and her work is collected on her site, sallyberkovic.com. The Tenth of Tevet has a twofold meaning today. It originated as a fast day, which mourns the siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar and which ultimately led to the destruction of the first temple. Additionally, while here in Israel, we memorialize the Shoah, particularly on Yom HaShoah, the chief rabbinate of Israel also set the 10th of Tevet as the general Kaddish day, the Yom HaKadish HaKlali, to remember the victims of the Holocaust, in particular for those whose yard site is unknown. Today, in honor of Yom HaKadish HaKlali and this month, in honor of Chodesh Tevet, in which we mark the general Kaddish Day, we will be talking about women's involvement in Jewish burial and mourning. I will be speaking with Sally Berkovic, who recently published a book about her holy work in the Chavra Kaddisha. Her unique background and experience will enlighten and enrich us, particularly for this month. Sally, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Karen. It's a real pleasure to be invited. Uh, I'd like to begin by asking you to describe a little of what it means to be on the Hever Kedisha as a woman and and why and how you found it meaningful. I, on a significant birthday, I decided to give myself a gift. You know, everyone, what can you get for an older person? What can you buy? And I thought, you know what, I'm going to give myself a gift of joining the Hever Kedisha. I wanted to find something meaningful. Um, and I find it meaningful for a couple of reasons, but one is because precisely because of its anonymity, in that you have no relationship with the person who has died. Um, they very once in a while you might know that person, but generally you don't. You generally don't talk about the work, and I know I've um, uh, cast, you know, broken that spell a little bit in writing about it, and we can talk about why I chose to write the book a little later. Mm-hmm. But it's something um, that for me personally, also was a way to pay it forward. My parents uh, died when I was quite young, my mother and father a few years apart, but I was still relatively young. And I never really, at the time, because you're so caught up with the death, I never thought about, well, how did their bodies get ready for burial? What happened? Who did this? It's only as an older person that I've started to wonder about that. And then as I learned more about the Hebrew Kaddisha myself, I thought, gosh, these people did an incredible thing for my parents and for all for everyone. Um, I want to be part of that. So it's sort of part of that cycle of of gratitude for what's 
been in the past and hopefully you know have there are other people who will have gratitude in the in the future for what's what's done been done been done for their family so I suppose it's being part of that cycle um and I also like the silence of it there's something very moving the room is silent when you're performing the tahara I mean there might be brief instructions you know pass me this pass me that but the focus is is very much on the person who's died and thinking about their life thinking about your own life and this silence you know we're in such a busy world and I'm sure you'll have a hundred emails waiting for you by the time we've finished this podcast and there's so much going on the whole time but actually to have that you know, 40 minutes or so, 45 minutes of calm and silence and reflection. It's a very, I find it a very meaningful experience. Um, and it's one way to contribute to the Jewish community. Uh, everyone has to do their bit as a volunteer. And uh, for me, that's been a meaningful way to volunteer. Wow. Are there many women you know who, how many other women do you know who uh, who have been involved? Well, interestingly, um so there are different Chavre Kadisha in I'm, I'm based in London. So I I um, volunteer for the United Synagogue, which is the main centrist, not orthodox um, body. But there are other ones as well. So I, I certainly don't know the women in the others. Um, and because of the nature, you generally don't tell people you're on the Chavre Kadisha. I don't really know who's on it. Um, but occasionally I'll see someone from my shul you know doing it and for a moment you have to like oh out of context I didn't realize you did this or you know bumped into somebody at the butcher and particularly when we had to wear masks at one point and you really didn't know and then somehow people made you know did the uh worked it out so but it's not something um this notion of telling people with when when I joined the Hevra um we had a couple of uh you know sessions induction sessions and there was very much this you mustn't tell anybody it's a secret it's uh sanua must keep it modest and actually that really appealed to me i really liked that idea and so for years i didn't mention it to anybody unless it was like this meeting somebody out of context that, that i happened to know um and then i had a shabbat lunch with some friends once and a friend was visiting from at my friend's home somebody one of her friends was visiting from america and out of the blue, she started saying, oh, at the Hebra, we had this and we had a dinner and that. And I sheepishly said, oh, you know, a friend of mine who I told me that a friend of hers said that you're not meant to talk about it sort of thing. And she said, well, it's ridiculous. If we don't know about it, how will people learn about it? She was very, she said, you don't have to show off about it, but if we don't discuss it, how will you know what happens? And And it's a part of life. And there was a a man at the table from London who said, nobody ever told me I can't talk about it. Mm. I thought, ah, that's quite interesting. The women were being told, don't say anything about it. The men, they, I'm sure the men weren't weren't told, go scream it from the rooftops, but um, they also weren't being um, told to be quiet about it. So I'm torn between wanting to read a lot into that and not wanting to make a big deal about it mm. um, because I don't think it's something that, I know I've written about it and, and I've talked, my book is not a halachic guide in any way. It sort of talks about the, the, my own experience and also ties it in with wider issues of loss and mourning and saying Kaddish and, and how grief um, operates in a community and, in, and how we need to have these wider discussions. I feel we need wider discussions about it. Um, so it's, um, 
yeah, your question was whether I've bumped into people. I've sort of expanded that a little bit around not people generally don't it's not generally something you talk about no. um but when you do it when it's done in a respectful manner and in a way to to allow others to understand it more I think it's really important wow well I know our listeners given that this is an Eden Center podcast are already in their heads making the connections to Hilchot Nida and Tarada Mishpacha and we will talk about some of those connections uh, in a little bit um before we get to that um uh, you talk uh, in your book, um, I read a little bit more about your family history. And given that this podcast is around Yom HaKadish HaKlali and memorializing the Holocaust, um, I would I would like to ask you to share more about your family story. Uh, your, your, your parents are both survivors. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and then, of course, uh, a follow-up question of uh, does your does your work in the Chavar Kadisha give honor to their memory? Of course. Can I flip that around and just answer the second question just a little bit first because I think it gives a little bit of context. Sure. Um, when I started the Chavra, I didn't consciously think about the connection to the Holocaust uh, or to my parents. I mean, well, there was a little bit of wanting to sort of that pay it forward, but I didn't have a framework for thinking about it. But actually, as I started working, I it came to me that, and it sounds so obvious now and sort of I, I feel sort of embarrassed it wasn't an immediate thought, that all the people who died, there was no Hebra Kadisha, there was no Tahara, they, you know, they went up in flames or they were in pits in ravines, killed on en masse, um, and there's no memorial stone um, there is, you know, for individuals, people... My my father set yeah, Shavuot as his yard site date because there was a um, there was a, a deportation from his village um, on Shavuot, so he made that the yard site date. Um, but you know, people don't know exactly when when their their relatives died, and it was through through that that I thought that sort of added a weight to the doing the Hebra Kadisha, actually, that ina- I was enabling people to have this process that was denied to so many, to, to, to millions of people. Mm. And in my work, which is involved with European Jewish communities, um, I travel through Europe and many small Jewish communities really struggle to have a Hebra Kadisha. And these are communities that were decimated by the Holocaust. So, you know, you are seeing traces of Jewish life in many places, Um uh, you're also seeing a revival of Jewish life in many European cities, which is a, a separate topic. Topic. I don't want to go off 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 point, but the 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 issue is that the ability to be able to bury people appropriately um, and the capacity to do that, the lack of the ability to do that, is one of the fallouts of the Holocaust as well. And it's only I've only more recently put those pieces together. Mm-hmm. Um, so to go back to my my family's experience, my parents were both born in um, what's now Slovakia, although they met in Australia um, uh, after the war. My my father was um, from a small town and they were deported and went through Auschwitz and uh, I was on the death march. He was one of, uh, with his parents and many siblings, but he and his brother survived, my uncle, and they made their way to Australia. Um, outside of Israel, the highest percentage of Holocaust survivors ended up in in Australia, actually, you know, per capita. Um, yeah. And it was a very, I was about 20 before I met somebody whose parents were not Jewish 
who met somebody Jewish whose parents were not Holocaust survivors or just wow. and moving to London which is where it's not there are of course survivors here but it's a very different vibe and and I always um I tell people that Yom HaShoah in in Melbourne was felt like Yom Kippur that was it had the significance of Yom Kippur not now so much things have changed and this is I'm talking 30 30 years ago mm. um it was it's a very strong Yom HaShoah you 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 were there you were absolutely there um for Yom HaShoah um, my mother's story is a little bit different um and if I can share with you uh her experience and and I think which also is a story for for so many people about righteous Gentiles um my her her cousin my yes her, my mother's first cousin who lives in Israel is a name, man named Naftali First, and he's done a lot around Holocaust education. He's travelled to um, to Europe to go back and talk about his experiences. He was in Auschwitz, and then he and his family made Aliyah and live in Israel. After They went after the war. They live on a kibbutz up north. He's not. He's having his 90th birthday now. Uh, wow. Actually, And he has a little website. And where he talks about his experiences and he has the address of where he grew up. He received an email, if I can just share you, you, you this email, and it says, my name is Pavel Krasny. I read your story on his web start, website. Very impressed me. My mother told me a story about a Jewish family that hid during the war in our house in Shera Street in Piestiny. It was Mr. Arpad Weiss and two women. One lady died during the war. They were very harsh times. On the street, marching German soldiers. Hiding in the house of a Jewish family was very dangerous. After the war, our friends went to Australia. Well, there are time. There are those times behind us. We believe that the suffering we will not have to experience. I'm glad I managed to get your contact. I wish you good luck in life. Pavel Krasny. P.S. Sorry for my English. <laughs> so Pavel sent this email to Naftali with a photo of my mother. Mm-hmm. And Naftali emails me straight away. He says, I've got this. Huh? And my grandmother, so my mother's mother, was one of those women that he mentions in the email. And her twin sister was the lady who died in the war. Mm. So we received this email. You know, I fell off my chair. Fell off my chair. Can imagine. Um, and what had happened was Pavel was clearing out his elderly mother's home. And he found this photo of the young girl who was my mother. Um, he attached the photo to the email. And the... the um, we real we it was totally legitimate. Um, my mother was born in 1937, and she'd already been separated from her mother and hidden in a few places before she was brought to their home in 1944. She'd been in a convent for a little bit. Um, then, so Naftali and I actually went to Bratislava to meet this family, and so it was Pavel's mother to get it right. Pavel's mother was was a teenager who would take food downstairs to the basement underneath the house to my mother and her mother, mm. to my grandmother. Um, so we met Amelia, which is Pavel's uh, mother. She was 92 at the time. Wow. Um, and it was just this, like, it, it really surreal. I think they were a little concerned we were going to come and try and reclaim some property, which we had no intention of doing. It was, you know, quite a bit of trust had to be built up, actually. And Naftali was fantastic. He was amazing. Mm. Um, and he he was really determined that um, 
Amelia's parents, so Pavel's grandparents, get that right, would be recognised as righteous Gentiles. And they were because there are certain criteria that have to be met. You can't receive payment. Uh, you have to, there's a whole few things. Um, so they um, they were, they were recognised by Yad Vashem. It took about three years, the process, and then we went back to Bratislava, and it ties up with what you're talking about, the general Shoah Day in, in January. Um, across Europe in different embassies, they will have these uh, commemoration days for, for, for the Holocaust Memorial Day, and they invite families who have been recognised as righteous Gentiles during that year. Mm-hmm. So we went um, to the embassy in, to the Israeli embassy in Slovakia, on on uh, Holocaust Memorial Day in January, and there were nine different families being recognised as righteous Gentiles. It was quite an extraordinary afternoon, mm-hmm. and each family um, their story was retold. So enough. Tully was he would have been eighty six was about there yeah, three or four years ago, um, and he just luckily before COVID we were able to do it, and he got on stage, and there were films were taken, and we we met. We met, re-met Pavel again, but he brought his children and he brought some other relatives. And I took one of my daughters um, with me. And it was really quite something to to be able to mark this occasion on, on International Holocaust Memorial Day. Um, so, uh, and then my, my some, eventually my mother came to Australia, met my father, and, and they built a life together um, in Melbourne. And I always, they were very, um, they had a little shop. They had two kids who went to school, who went to university, got jobs, married, had families, very ordinary. And I think what that's what's extraordinary. A lot of people make a big deal about, you know, so-and-so came with nothing and he made millions and he bought this and he bought that, owns property and, and often very generous. And that's wonderful. And there are some extraordinary people that have done that. But that's a small number of people. The majority of people were extraordinary in their ordinariness. The fact that they, you know, slept, got, went to bed, managed to, to get up the next day and move ahead, even though they had terrible nightmares, they created, you know, they got a mortgage, they opened bank accounts, they went shopping, they made bar mitzvahs, they just managed day-to-day life um, without calling attention to themselves, not wanting any pity, just getting on with life. And that was very much my, I was going to say had a simple life, but what, but that sounds derogatory. It's not, it wasn't simple. It was just ordinary. And I think that's sort of extraordinary actually. Um, and very grateful for having that. And I, you know, there's a whole body of literature around second generation um, children of survivors. And I've, I've read everything there is to read. Um, and you know, everyone has different experiences, but I'm very grateful that we have this, um, what I think was an ordinary life, which doesn't mean I'm not full of neuroses, but <laughs> one, can have, one can have those, you know. Um, I, I understand the issues, um, but uh, I, I, yeah, so I, that's sort of the, that's the experience of my my family. Yes, yes. And, and second generation um, survivors, as they're called, is, you know, it's, now today, I think the torch has been uh, pretty much handed over that this is the generation who's really going to be sharing um, sharing these stories as authentically as possible. So, so thank you so much and for sharing that. I'm, I'm going to shift gears a little now and move to the second part of your book, which is um, relates to women saying Kaddish. Um, 
You've been an activist regarding women's place in orthodoxy and um, and hear, uh, being able to hear and listen to women's voices. I would love to talk to you about women saying Kaddish. On the one hand, this is not so new. Um, it's relatively accepted now, uh, at least in the modern orthodox world. Yet, uh, I still hear from my work as a Meshivat Halacha and in my community, my friends, many women are still struggling with saying Kaddish, uh, finding places where it's comfortable to say it, uh, managing to feel a part of the tzibur, especially during weekdays, things can be very rushed, they might be the only one there in the women's section. Um, in what ways can communities be more encouraging of women saying Kaddish? And how can we as women create more meaning and support for uh, for women on the women's side of the Mechitza saying Kaddish? Sure. Um, I thank you for calling me an activist. Um, I appreciate that. And what's so incredibly encouraging is seeing women now doing extraordinary things that 25 years ago when I wrote my book called Under My Hat, I mentioned these things, touched on them, but the fact they've all come to fruition and continue to come to fruition is just just wonderful to, to see. And one of the issues I raised in, in my book um, uh, a while, a few years ago, was the issue around Kaddish. And this, as I said, was 25 years ago, and I gave a lot of book talks. I'd go around chatting um, about the book. It touched on a wide range of things around orthodoxy and feminism. And the one thing every single group said you know, a woman probably in her 60s or 70s would put her hand up and say, I used to belong to the Orthodox community, but when my mother, father died, they wouldn't let me say Kaddish. They wouldn't, some of them weren't even able to go to the cemetery, but they were also, we weren't allowed to say Kaddish. Even when I didn't have brothers, we weren't allowed. They wanted to pay some guy to say it for me, you know, and that was the point at which I left uh, Orthodoxy. Um, and they were very upset about that um, and understandably upset. So there was a lot of pain, um, emotional pain by being excluded. Um, fortunately, that has changed a lot. And over the last, I'd say, five to 10 years, and I can only talk about the UK experience, women are saying Kaddish in shuls. In the, in, and the United Synagogue, the centrist Orthodox group, Chief Rabbi Mervis has put out a pamphlet actively encouraging women um, to say Kaddish, encouraging the rabbis to encourage the women in their community. What's interesting to me is women who are reluctant to say it. And it's either in, it's either just feeling awkward, it's embarrassment that perhaps their Hebrew isn't um, as fluent, um, and it's a, a general unease. Um, but we are seeing a lot more. A lot it's, more also, it's also a big commitment. It's a big yes. commitment. Yeah. And I think what's also been helpful is the rabbis have said, when you can, you can. They haven't made, some women, I mean, I, I know some people who have taken it on three times a day the whole year, but not everybody can is ready for that or feels they can do it. But I think if we start by saying, you know, when you come to Shalom Shabbat morning, so you start with that, you know. Yeah. Um, and in terms, so I think that's been a really positive, uh, positive development. And the more women see, other women see, you know, it, then more women start to do it. Um, in terms of making it more more comfortable, look, um, I can 
the, the mechitza, you know, men on the on the male side, they need to know that there's a woman saying Kaddish. So if, if they can't see the a woman saying Kaddish, they don't know to pause and wait for her. So there are things to do with the synagogue architecture that make a difference. Sometimes you can't do anything about that. We have in our shul um, a woman's officer, which essentially uh, helps women who are saying Kaddish will check if anybody, you know, we know who's got Yatzai that week. If they come to shul or if somebody uh, asks for a bit of assistance, somebody will stand next to the person and help them say it. Mm-hmm. And there's a sort of ethos of, of turning around and making sure to check in the shul if any, any women need to say Kaddish. And the, because you can see, we have a mechitza but the um, you can see over it. We we sit side by side in our shul, so um, the yeah. <laughs> yeah, the will always pause to make sure that the women have finished saying kaddish, and it's quite sweet. The woman sort of the woman's officer will give a thumbs up. You know, mm-hmm. you're ready to go ahead. You can continue, yeah. and it's actually been the, the men have learned have had to learn to slow down, mm-hmm. um, and there's a couple of women who are very fluent and and. Um, occasionally who are if they've got a yard side or whatever and, and uh that's almost that surprises the men that the women uh are comfortable are very when they're very comfortable um the women often say it very quietly that's the other thing and the rabbi has said say it as loud as you you want to say it but they don't feel comfort comfortable doing that so it's also important that other women sort of stand around and, and answer answer her because uh you can't always hear her louder in the louder in the shul um, you and I exchanged a, a WhatsApp yesterday about the lovely piece by um, Rabbi Krauss's son about yes. saying Kaddish and that his Kaddish was finishing uh, yesterday or today. Yes. But what was very sensitive about that, he talked about his sister's experience. Um, and I thought to myself, you need to be in that situation with sisters to under- and be sensitive yourself to understand the difference for women. And actually, I think when... a um, when men understand that more, as he clearly did from his piece, then things will change for women as well. So we we do have to bring men along on the journey, um, because the the which which sounds like I'm always uh, um, not ambivalent about saying that, but it it almost sounds apologetic. But that's the pragmatic reality. If men don't understand what women are experiencing or a semblance of what they're experiencing, then it's very hard for them to change their their attitudes. So I thought his piece yesterday, um, his blog was very, uh, very helpful in that regard, actually. Definitely, um, definitely. I remember the image of um, Rabbanit Racheli Sprecher Finkel yes. being up at the tragic funeral of her son, one of the three boys who was uh, kidnapped, yeah. murdered, and uh, for her to get up in front of all of Am Israel and say Kaddish, I think uh, was a, a huge um, had a huge impact on um, you know we of course wish she wouldn't have had to be in that position, but given that she uh, did that, I think that that really provided a model for women in communities to see and was incredible. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a real pivotal a pivotal moment. Um, I think. Um, you know, Kaddish is obviously said for the year, but it's also said for, for yard sites and 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 yiskor. Um, well, women participate in the yiskor uh, on the chagim, um, but the yard sites interest me because, and the, the, I suppose the shloshim as well. The yard sites interest me because these may be opportunities for women to think about doing something a little different. 
if they can go to shul and say Kaddish, that's fine, uh, obviously. But it may be an opportunity to think, well, maybe I could give a shiur. Maybe I could learn some Mishnah and have a seum at the end. Men often are doing that as well. But I think there's the same way women have been looking at evolving rituals in other aspects of, of our lives. Maybe we want to, to complement the um, the Kaddish with some other rituals that enable that, that empower women a little bit more and, and draw on the lot the scholarship that women are engaged with or draw on their creativity. So um I, I think we need to to think about that. There's a, a wonderful um piece in the when Shalom Aleichem died, um there was a, a, a wonderful piece about his funeral, but it also read out a part of his will. And in his will it says that if he um if his children choose not to say Kaddish for him, that he wants them to get together on his yard site and read out their their most favourite story that he wrote, mm-hmm. a story that appeals to them and that they should remember him with, with laughter and appreciation for his writing and that that would be the Jewish expression of their appreciation of his life. So recognizing that Yatzite might not, sorry, that the Kaddish might not do it for everybody, but he wanted to be remembered on his Yatzite, but he wanted to have this this way of of doing it. Um, so maybe men, at, well, and women should be thinking about ways to complement um, the Kaddish, the recital of Kaddish. Um, yeah. That's it, not to replace, but to to complement. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it, in terms, of we're talking about uh, Holocaust Memorial Day. We know we've seen the whole Zicharon Basalon movement for Yom, for Yom HaShoah in particular, which um, originated in, in Israel of bringing people together uh, more informally with a survivor in their lounge room to, to, to reflect on the Holocaust rather than having these big grand ceremonies. Again, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be one or the other, but they, they certainly complement and they bring it much more to life really and bring it very real. Um, so maybe there's scope to be thinking about alternative or complementary um, ceremonies for for uh, for memorialization. Since this is an this is an Eden Center podcast, uh, we always try to circle back to the topic of mikvah uh, in some way. And I know you did a wonderful webinar recently with Rabbanit Nahama Barash about the parallels between uh, the Tara involved in Chavar Kadisha and the Tara of Mikvah. You also touched on the topic of the secrecy around, at least possibly for women in Chavar Kadisha and Mikvah, and perhaps there's some connection there. Um, I'd love uh, if we close with, um, if possible, for you to share some some parallels, some interesting parallels between these two worlds, which really it's quite amazing in the sense that it's one is associated with the potential for um, intimacy and birth and the other um, at the ends of the life cycle. Right. You've stole my line. That's it. That's right. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. I mean, on a practical level, um, the rainwater is used in the mikvah and rainwater used for the tahara as well. So you have that, um, some of the practical elements. But I think it's very moving that um, actually the the morning um, of the mikvah is the this potential loss. You're going to the mikvah because you may have wanted to be pregnant, but it didn't didn't turn out. Depending on the stage of life that you're you're at, so there is that loss there. And at the same time, the chevra kadisha is all about loss and grief. The sanua, the privacy, the secrecy. There is it's very sanua to go to the mikvah. There, it's 
um, I don't know if it's taboo in the same way as talking about the chevre is taboo, um, but I think there is a, an element of we don't discuss it, we we don't tell people when we're going in the evening, and I, I obviously I understand that, and I did the same. It's not something you you tell people what you're doing at night time, but somehow integrating it into our kids' education, our young adults' education, sexuality, death. You know, Freud would have a Freud would have a, a great time with it all. But I think there is something about how we treat these issues that needs to be explored further. They seem to have both have these um, elements, actually, as you you know, you really touched on of the mixture of the life cycle. And uh, yeah. and it's interesting because as we were talking about Kaddish, a lot of what that's about is the idea of memorializing uh, people and, and their legacies. And so, uh, and so you have that in, you have that in Kaddish, that in death, there's also, how do you, how do you continue their memory, continue their life? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so we, I, I guess there's that mixture in both of them, which is very poignant. And I think people write books for their own legacy and they, they write, uh, if, if we talk about the role of the, the Poseket, she is writing responsa in for perpetu- for perpetuity and to for her legacy and for the, for in order to and that's why I think there's also an interesting development women who have been involved in mikvah work and um traditionally seen as women's you know issues they will be dealing with all sorts of issues but i and that's been a, a wonderful for the mikvah world um i haven't seen a similarity in the world of the Hebrew Kadisha of women having to rule on anything. I'm not sure what that would be, but I think that's a really interesting area to explore. Now that you've conquered the world of mikvah and uh, Tarat Mishpacha, maybe the next frontier is actually looking at women's roles mm-hmm. as a, a poseket around uh, issues of, of death. Death and mourning, yeah. Certainly women are being trained in, in Avelut and uh, and helping in that regard, but Hebrew Kadisha, yeah, that's a whole nother another area. Well, um, I really want to thank you so much, Sally, for this incredibly enriching and, um, you know, the, the story, your story of your work and your family's story. Um, it's truly, uh, it's a, an incredible credit to you and your, your family and your community. And, um, and really, uh, thank you for sharing with us. I know we all learned something really significant today and, um, Left certainly left me <laughs> thinking about how I want to give back and pay it forward. Um, Thank you for the opportunity. It's been a real treat for me. <laughs> so it should be a chodesh tov. Amen. Hanukkah This podcast is hosted by the Eden Center, whose goal is to reinvigorate the ancient female ritual of mikveh as a sacred space for women and use it as the natural platform it is to connect to Jewish women's health, well-being, and healthy relationships enhancing Jewish women and family life. We invite you to visit our website, www.theedincenter.com, to learn more about our work in making mikvah relevant, welcoming, and meaningful. This episode is a product of the Eden Center. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider sponsoring a podcast in dollars or shekels at bit.ly backslash E-D-E-N-P-O-D. Additionally, give us a five-star rating, share this podcast on social media, and encourage others to subscribe.